you know, I talked with one player who was not a big fan of the American system for his own playing time and his role on the team, but he realized that the team was going to win gold at the Olympics, that that was the way to do it because it accentuated the strengths of the team. And so that player had to put his own individual goal beneath the team goal. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome back to Status Go. I'm your host, Jeff Tun. If you are listening to this podcast, chances are you are interested in growing as a leader. As a technology professional, you are interested in driving change. You have an innate curiosity and you love to solve problems. Those traits not only make you a great technologist, they provide a great foundation for leadership. There are a couple of things about leadership that can feed the soul of a technology pro. First of all, there's always more to learn. It doesn't matter if you have recently assumed the mantle of leadership or you've been doing it for decades. Secondly, there are lessons in leadership everywhere you look. Today on Status Go, we're going to look for leadership lessons in volleyball. Yes, volleyball. Specifically, we're going to talk about the brand new book, If Gold is Our Destiny. It's the story of the 1984 gold medal winning men's Olympic volleyball team. Our guest is author Sean Murray. Sean is the founder and CEO of Real-Time Performance, a leadership development organization based in Seattle. He was on Status Go a couple of years ago, talking about leadership in the midst of the pandemic. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Jeff, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. I am really excited to talk about your book, Sean. Uh, I had the, the privilege of reading an advanced copy of it, as you know, but for our listeners' sake, and really enjoyed it because the, the story of the 1984 men's Olympic team is one I remember from uh, when I was a kid. I, I followed that team and was in, loved volleyball, and it was just a great, great story made up of uh, – personalities that were larger than life, if, if you will. Uh, so I know that as you, as you wrote this book, uh, it's, it's part sports story and part leadership book. So let's start with the sports story part. Tell us about the run-up to the 1984 Olympics. Sure, Jeff. Yeah, this, this is really a fascinating team for those who, who aren't familiar with it. Uh, it's important to note that USA Volleyball in the 70s and, and the early 80s was not a successful program. Uh, it, what was going on in that era, actually the United States had good talent. I would say maybe not the best talent, but, but quite elite when it came to talent because there, the, the sport was very popular in Southern California. There were a lot of players coming up playing on the beaches and there was college programs that had developed to that point, uh, UCLA, USC. Uh, but what was going on was the national team would hold tryouts every year and select the all-stars, you know, the best players. And they'd throw them together for a couple weeks of practice, maybe four to six weeks. And then they would 
fly off to Europe and play in these tournaments. And probably not a big surprise to a lot of your listeners, uh, those of you in technology, and you know how what it's like when you throw teams together. It doesn't always work, especially with these really highly skilled, you know, I might even say um, big egos, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden they're trying to play in a team together. And volleyball is a very much a team sport. Uh, there are people that claim it is the most team-oriented sport out there. And uh, I don't want to get into that argument. People will bring up soccer and other things. But, it, I mean, let's face it. It's, you've played it. Um, we've probably all played it in the backyard somewhere. And there's no one-on-one in volleyball. It's not like you can give the ball to LeBron James or Michael Jordan and they can sort of take over and win the game. You've got to pass back and forth and volley and uh, work together and you rotate. And and so it's a very team-oriented sport. And what was going on in the 70s was the United States program was just, um, as one coach told me, mirrored in mediocrity. Uh, (laughs) We were getting our butts handed to us. That's what was happening. (laughs) That's a very nice way to put it. Yeah. One, One world championships, the United States finished 18th and there's 24 teams that get invited. And they were two spots below Mongolia, you know, a country with 2 million people. And here, mm-hmm. here we were at the time with over 200 million. So something was wrong. And this is a sport invented in the United States. So there, there was some pride on the line. And, but, you know, a new coach came along, Doug Beal. He was a former player. He became the coach in the late 70s. And a new generation came along, um, a golden generation of really talented players. Your listeners might have heard of or remember Karch Karai. Uh, he's probably the most famous volleyball player in the United States and, and even in the world. He was voted the uh, the player of the century at the, at the end of the 20th century. And he's the only player who's won a gold in both indoor and on beach volleyball. And he recently coached the women's team to gold last summer at the Olympics in Tokyo. So Karch was just an amazing talent and he was, he was the youngest player on that team. And so he was coming up along with some of his colleagues, uh, Dusty Dvorak, Pat Powers, to name a few people, Steve Timmons, Chris Marlowe. Uh, and, uh, and they, what, what happened right around the early eighties was Doug Beal, the head coach, uh, moved the program from Dayton, Ohio, you know, from the Midwest and just was struggling in the Midwest. It wasn't the right place for this program. They moved it to San Diego. They were able to attract more talent. And they they started training year round. That was another big issue is you know, just putting a team together four to six weeks of practice and, and playing a, a team like the Soviet Union or Poland or Italy or, or Brazil that practices and plays together year round. Uh, they just, the team didn't have the, the, the culture, the, the trust, the, the internal dynamics to be successful. You know, a lot of the things we talk about in leadership and team build, they just didn't have that yet. So they, they trained year round and they started to, you know, achieve some success, but it didn't come overnight. Um, and I talk about that in the book, you know, there's certain, certain elements and interventions that happened that helped the team get to um, not just the gold medal, but really sustained excellence. Um, this this team went on to go just beyond the '84 Olympics to have to really change the sport. Yeah, they became incredibly successful uh, almost in spite of themselves as they as they went through this. And we're going to touch on some of the leadership lessons uh, of this. But before we do, Sean, I I think it's important for our audience to know this. You have a personal connection to this story. What's your personal connection to the 1984 gold medal 
men's volleyball team? <laughs> well, the short answer is my father, uh, but he, he was not a player on the team. Uh, he, 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 no one would have mistaken him for an Olympic athlete. He was a great guy. Uh, and, but he was five foot 11 and it couldn't jump that high. So that was not his, his gifts were not in the physical area. He was the team psychologist, one of two team psychologists that worked with Doug Beal, the head coach and the players. And so his job was to work on the team dynamics, to work on the intangibles, you know, how the team worked together, how they set goals, how they were motivated, you know, what, how they reacted in matches when things weren't going their way. Uh, we talk a lot about sports psychologists for, you know, say marathoners or mm -hmm. tennis professionals and so forth. And the, a, a lot of that, those interventions go into mindset and, and your motivation. And, and so it was the same thing, but my father, Don Murray and his partner, Chuck Johnson, were working with the team as a whole to try to, mm -hmm. to help them take their mental game and also their how they treat each other, how they work together, how they communicate all of those issues and kind of take it to the next level. Because at that level of volleyball or in, in any sport or business, you've got great talent. Mm -hmm. You know, you, at, at Amazon, they've got great talent. At Google, they've got great talent. At, at you know, Facebook, there's incredible technical talent. It, it, it's about how you work together, how you innovate, right? How you drive innovation and collaborate. And so that's the same thing with this volleyball team. They had great talent, but so did the Soviet Union. So did Poland, so did Brazil. So the, the X factor at that level, I truly believe is not the talent. It's how they work together. And, and so that's, that's what my father did. And so I was actually at the Olympics in 84. I was 13 years old. Uh, I like to say I really looked up to these guys because I literally did. I was about four <laughs> foot five, and they were six foot five. And uh, but um, yeah, so that that's why one reason why I wanted to write this book was the personal connection to the team. Yeah. So when you set out to write this book, did you know you were writing a leadership book, or were you just writing a sports story? What was what was that thought process? Well, I wanted to write a book about leadership. And, and team building. That was my first goal. I didn't really know what I wanted to write. I wanted to write about a real team or a real story. I didn't want to write a book that's just Sean Murray's, you know, seven principles to leadership success. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I, I had anything unique to bring to that table. I mean, there's already so many books written about leadership, but probably more importantly, I just firmly believe people learn through stories. You know, human memory is story-based and stories provide that emotional hook that prompts us to remember. And I have learned tremendously about leadership by reading biographies, by reading about other teams. I had recently read the book Boys in the Boat, which is a, a right. book about another American underdog Olympic team, it happened to be a, a rowing team, a crew team from the 1936 Olympics. It was a very inspiring book. And I, I finished the book and I thought, you know, I'd like to write a book about a team or a leadership in general. And I started thinking about what, what I could write about. You know, I thought about Lewis and Clark, uh, a subject yep. you and I have a mutual um, background in. I thought about famous sports teams like the Patriots. I thought about um, the moon landing, <coughs> excuse me, and various other just epic teams. And I didn't want to rehash a story that people maybe had already been familiar with. And then it occurred to me with my father's connection that there's a team right here under my nose that, uh, and 
I remember the team. I didn't know how incredible their story was until I got into the research of the book. And I realized as I started peeling back the research, just how amazing this, this team is. And I think if you'd study any team at the level I did with this book, that's achieved sustained greatness over time, you probably will be equally surprised um, because nothing happens at that level without a lot of um, interesting and fundamental things falling in place for that, that we all can learn from, from a team. So it just happened to be a great connection, a great story, and that's how it all came together. Well, it is a great story, and it's a great leadership book as well. And you you mentioned uh, our heroes, Lewis and Clark. So I, I'm going to jump into uh, kind of start there because what I, one of the things that I found really really interesting for those that don't know the story of Lewis and Clark, when Thomas Jefferson selected Meriwether Lewis to lead the expedition, one of the first things he did was reach out to William Clark to be his co-captain, to help him lead this expedition. And here in this story, we find the same dynamic going on. Uh, Doug Beal is named as the head coach of the men's volleyball team, and he reaches out and talk to us about who he reached out to, why he reached out to him, and why that was such an important part of forming this team. Yeah, well, it's kind of important to note that Doug Beale's style at that time, and which you might consider, you know, he was from the Midwest. He was more strict, very disciplined. A lot of these players were from the beaches of California, a little bit more carefree, you know, like to go surfing in between their beach workouts and before they came into the gym to work with, with Doug on the indoor team. And so, you know, Doug had a, a very demanding style. He set high expectations of his players and he kept an emotional distance from them because he knew he would have to make some very difficult decisions as we got closer to the Olympics around who was going to be on the team and who was going to get cut. Uh, so he had a lot of strengths, but he recognized that one area that he really needed some help in was developing the more personal relationships with the players. And he, so he had he had, as I mentioned, he had, was the coach in Dayton, Ohio, before he moved the program to San Diego. And in Dayton, he didn't have an assistant coach. He didn't have the resources to hire one. So when he did move the program to San Diego in 1981, three years before the Olympics, he had the resources and he, he reached out to a friend of his who complimented him in a very important way. This, this friend, was his name is Bill Neville. And Bill is just the consummate relationship coach. You know, he's someone who the players developed very close relationships over time. He understood the players psychologically. He understood their their tendencies as a player. He worked with them personally and he was highly motivating. You know, he was someone that the players loved to to play for and play their best for. And and so it was just a great combination. Doug was a real strategic thinker, great planner, had a lot of vision set the stage and the plan. And then he brought in Doug, B, uh, he brought in Bill Neville, who just complimented him tremendously on building the culture and building the rapport and building relationships and the trust. And so together they were way stronger as a team. Um, they both went on to coach the national team as head coaches without the other one there and didn't neither had the success that they had when they were together. That's fascinating that they, they both rose to the 
to the top and without each other that it wasn't the same wasn't the same chemistry uh, I, I I love that concept uh, in the in the EOS uh, books the entrepreneurial operating system they talk about uh, visionary and integrator as two of the leading roles that you need in an organization and as I was reading that book those were the things that were popping in my head is oh you know, uh, Beale was a great uh, visionary at this point and an integrator over here. And Neville was a great uh, integrator over here and a visionary over here. They kind of sometimes swapped roles, but it was definitely uh, obvious that Neville was the relationship guy uh, with these players. So you mentioned Outward Bound. What on earth were they doing going on this type of adventure? Many of our listeners have probably heard of Outward Bound, but for those that didn't, explain a little bit about what that is uh, and why the the coaches and the staff thought this was a good idea to take these star athletes out in that experience. Well, about about a year and a half before the Olympics, maybe two years, in 1982, there was a world championships and there was a, the U S team had a very disappointing showing at those world championships. They ended up finishing 13th and they had hoped to finish fifth or maybe fourth. Um, they thought they had the talent to finish that high and that was going to be keeping them on track to medal at the Olympics, because if they could finish fifth in 82, maybe get to fourth in, in 83, they could be top three by, 84. And that's, mm-hmm. that was their goal. And, and so immediately they realized they weren't, they were not on track. And, and one of the things that was holding them back was winning difficult matches. And if you've ever played volleyball, you know, there's massive momentum swings, you know, there's mm-hmm. times when your team just can't seem to do anything right, wrong. You know, they're, you're, you're hitting shots and blocking shots. And there's other times when you can't seem to score a point and something like that happened in Argentina in 82, and it was indicative of the team. You know, they were down, sorry, they were up big and, you know, 12 to five in the fifth and final set against a very critical opponent. And the other team it was Bulgaria came back and, and won the match and being up 12, five in that era when mm-hmm. it was, you know, 15, you, you, first team to 15, it was almost like, I don't know if you remember the Super Bowl a few years back when the Patriots were up uh, big at halftime and the, uh-huh. uh, sorry, when Atlanta was up big at halftime and then the Patriots came back. Uh, it's like that, but probably worse. And, and so the coaches, the staff, they, they recognized there was something was just the resilience wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when things weren't going the way, the right way with this team, they, how they treated each other on the court, how they handled those problems it wasn't working. And so they came up with this idea of going on a shared significant life experience, mm-hmm. you know, doing something together that would outside of volleyball, get kind of get people out of their comfort zone that would get the team to, you know, overcome some kind of obstacle and work and gel as a team and maybe see each other in different ways, you know, uh, so the first idea that got thrown around was to take the team through boot camp. You know, being based oh, in San yeah. Diego, uh, Camp Pendleton was just up the freeway. They thought, well, maybe the Marines will take these crew through boot camp because the U.S. military—that's what they do. They take these civilians, and nine or yeah. fifteen or twenty weeks later, whatever it is, they come out a fighting unit and and they're bonded and all that. And so 
they called them up and the, the Marines said, no, you can't, we're not going to send your volleyball team through boot camp. Oh, okay. So Bill Neville had a connection with Outward Bound. He'd had some experience with it. And, and Outward Bound is an organization that takes groups out into the wilderness through experiences to develop people individually and as a team, you know, to grow personally and do some reflection, but also work together as a team. And a lot of the players had never heard of Outward Bound. Some of the coaches hadn't, but they reached out to Outward Bound. Outward Bound designed a course specifically for this team. It was a, a rather, I would say, harsh course. Looking back on even when I talked with the instructors today, they say, boy, we really designed a pretty difficult course. You know, they, they almost are scratching their heads thinking, did we really do that? It ended up being 100 miles. It was snowshoeing and hiking up into the mountains of Utah in the middle of winter, 21 days, up above 11,000 feet. The weather got brutally cold. So they were carrying 70 pound packs. Everything is on their pack. Uh, you know, their tents, their stoves, their sleeping bags, all of their food. And they, they went out and worked together. They were reliant on each other to survive out there. And I think that's, that was part of the experience and part of the reason why when they, they came back, something changed. I believe being out there where you rely on your, your other teammates to survive. And by that, I mean, you know, breaking trails, someone's got to get out in front and mm -hmm. push the snow and then you can take turns, right? That's how you can make the time that you need to make to get to where you need to go. Someone needs to learn how to use a compass and a map and orient and find your route. Uh, when you get to your campsite, someone's got to clear out the area to put the tent up. Someone's going to cook. Someone's going to gather firewood. I mean, you all work together. You can't do it on your own. And, and that was an important element when they came out of this experience and they didn't want to be there. You know, there was a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining. Uh, but in fact, one player just about quit in the middle. One of the star players came very, very close to quitting and uh, decided to stay. And that's kind of another kind of talent versus commitment point in, in the story. Uh, but Outward Bound, um, I think, was critical because of it, it built the trust. It yeah, built the trust. Yeah. But it wasn't an immediate thing. I mean, the, some of the stories you relay about how they weren't getting along uh, out in that wilderness environment um, really, I think, tells the, the story. And, and I know many of our listeners have done um, ropes challenges and some of those team building ideas and and uh, I, I know a lot of times uh, you'll you'll see people rolling their eyes. It's like, oh, ropes course, you know, kind of thing. But it really does force you into these situations where you have to rely on each other. And there was one, and I forget the two players, but there was a time when they paired up and went out, right? Yes. Um, and... Um, they were supposed to spend the time together, uh, go out together, come back together. Uh, and one of the players came back without his partner, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. That's, that's a great story. And there's a, there's a lot of those in, in, in the book um, because, you know, put, put uh, 16 guys out in the wilderness for three weeks and just some crazy things happen. But that's, <laughs> that was an interesting one because they were paired up specifically to work together in the, the instructors, um, and I sometimes called them guides. And when I was interviewing them, they said, no, we're instructors. We're, we're, we're here to instruct. They really weren't there to guide because one of the things they did was they passed the knowledge 
down to the players. So after a couple of days of showing people, showing the players how to use a compass and a map, they just turned it over and said, okay, it's up to you. Now you're going to, here's where we need to go, uh, find out how to get there. And it was, it was that sort of idea with this exercise where two people were paired up, but they only gave them one map and one compass. And uh, they asked them to get to from one place to another and go along some checkpoints and get some marks and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and this was a, this was a time in the course. It was kind of towards the end when they were putting all their skills together and it was a little bit of a competition. And these two players thought that they could, uh, divide and conquer, you know, one guy would go off and grab a few of these marks and another guy would go off and then they'd rendezvous at this point and then they would win, you know? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately one person took the map, one person took the compass. Uh, I don't know how much you know about orienteering, but I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to use either one with just one and, and, and one player ended up getting lost and they had, instead of winning, they, he was, two, three hours late and they had to go out and find them. And, and they used that. You know, every night they'd sit around the campfire and they'd talk about what happened. And that was a great example of, okay, you know, this was designed to work together as a team and, and mm -hmm. what happens when you go solo and, and, and then what's going to happen if we try to go solo at the Olympics, we got to work together. How are we going to do that? And that's what the instructors did each night in the campfire. And, and then you're right. They did not get along at the beginning of this trip and even throughout, but towards the end, there's, there was one player in particular, Chris Marlowe, who was a very inspirational. He's the oldest player. He's the most mature. And he, he tells the story at the end of standing up around the campfire and saying, you know, I don't, I didn't really understand why we were brought on this trip when I, when we came, but now that I've been on it, he said, I didn't want to come, but now that I've been on it, I, I see why we're here. And he helped people make the most of that experience. Yeah. And he became one of the leaders on the team, if not the leader on the team, from an emotional uh, uh, team support and encouragement role, kind of that on the court uh, coach almost. Now, I want to I want to jump ahead a little bit because I know we're we're running out of time here, and I want to talk about one of the key lessons that that I saw as I was reading this book, and there are just so many of these leadership lessons in this book. But one of the things that happened is that uh, as they were preparing for the Olympics, they were continually copying some of the other teams' styles. In fact, there's a story about how they, uh, one of the Russian coaches, I believe, uh, took him under his wing and taught him the Russian offense. Um, and uh, then there was another time, I think it was uh, the Chinese offense, uh, and what they learned at some point was they needed to come up with their own offense. Um, talk to us about what it is that they finally realized as they were looking at their players and uh, the way that they were playing the game and why these other offenses wouldn't work and what they came up with instead. Yeah, that's such a profound lesson. And it, and it really came out in this story with Doug Beal and Bill Neville that, and Tony Crabb was the other coach. These coaches were looking at the talent they had. And as I mentioned before, the U.S. had no history of success. So, so they naturally turned to some of these programs that had won gold medals and had been successful, the Soviet Union being one of them, um, Italy, 
uh, sorry, Japan being another one and Poland. And so what was popular at the time was just to try to copy what the other teams were doing. And then we do this a lot in business. You know, you look yeah. out and you say, oh, well, this is how, you best know. Best practices. Your best practices. Yeah. McKinsey told me that I should do it this way, you know, and, uh, and you don't give as much thought to your unique situation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a conversation actually with the Japanese coach where the Japanese had made these beautiful films and were we're giving away this information. The Soviets were also very good at giving away all their secrets too, which is sort of amazing. And the Americans were scratching their heads and they asked the, the Japanese coach, why? Why would you tell us how, how you train and all the secrets of your program? And he said, well, only the Japanese can play like the Japanese. And he made the analogy to a Xerox copy. You know, you make a copy and it degrades the next generation. And then you make a copy of that copy and it's even further degraded, right? And so on and so forth. And the Japanese system was is uniquely designed for the players in the Japanese system and the skill set that they brought to volleyball. And it's important to note that in Japan, everyone learned the same system starting at an early age. It was a national program. Well, in the United States, there was no national program. We had players that were introduced to the sport, some in the YMCA, some at the beach, some from their parents in the backyard. I mean, there was no consistency. And especially these beach players, because they end up being the best players in the country at the time, because they're this, this tournament system had developed on beaches and, and they really, they got very good because they were playing all the time and they were playing two on two. So they were incredibly talented, but they were very unique. Some guys jumped off their left foot, some jumped off their right foot. Some had a certain swing techniques, you know, with hitting the ball and coming at it from the outside hitter. And they, and they love to call their own plays, you know, because mm -hmm. on the beach there were no coaches and they would just get together and, call plays with one another and work. There was a lot of creativity, a lot of audibles, all of this. So they looked at these players and in the U S the players were very agile, very quick. They, they weren't big and, and tall like the, the Soviet team. And so the Americans said, we got to find a system that is going to uniquely bring out our strengths. Mm -hmm. And um, that is such an important lesson when you think about your, your teams and business and, yeah, McKinsey might do it one way or the best practices, but you know, what does your team uniquely bring? Yeah. What skill set do you have? And maybe it's something within your culture, within your the mission of your organization that you can draw on. And and for these coaches, it was drawing on the roots of the players and that had come from the beach and trying to incorporate more of that creativity and ingenuity. And just to kind of put it in layman's terms, what they ended up developing was a system that uh, first of all, there was a lot more movement than anyone had ever seen before. They called it the swing offense. And there was people moving from one side of the court to the other, which created a lot of deception, which was very, very important to um, creating open lanes so there weren't blockers so that they, mm -hmm. they could hit the ball and uh, have a free hit. And they also called their own play. So the, the setter had always called the play in volleyball at that time and still does. But what they added was the hitter could sort of call an audible. So the, mm -hmm. the setter would call a play. The setter is the, the person who kind of flicks the ball high up in the air, usually the second hit and right before the spike, you know, bump yep. set spike. And the setter would, would call a play, but then the, 
as this right before the setter would set, the hitter would call out their variation of that play. Uh, the hitter might say red or stunt or pipe, and these all these things had different meanings of where they were going to come, and and so. That took obviously a high level of coordination, yeah. a lot of intelligence, a lot of time working together. It never been tried before. And, and, and Doug Beal said something really important. He said, you know, we weren't afraid to look foolish. And, yeah, and I yeah. think that goes hand in hand with, you have to take risks. And that goes hand in hand with trying to find the unique strengths, the system that's going to accentuate your strengths. And, you know, the other thing about this program is it that what they call the American system some players ended up having a bigger role because of the American system. Some players had a smaller role, just depended on what you brought to the table as far as your skill set. And again, players had to come to terms with that. You know, I talked with one player who was not a big fan of the American system for his own playing time and his role on the team, but he realized that the team was going to win gold Mm -hmm. at the Olympics, that that was the way to do it because it, accentuated the strengths of the team. And so that player had to put his own individual goal beneath the team goal. And, and that you have to, you know, to do that, you need trust, you need relate all these things, a good, healthy environment. You have to understand your role. And and that's just another great lesson for becoming a great team. Uh, That almost always has to happen somewhere on the line. If you're going to achieve greatness. It's, it's the vision of the team over the vision of the individual. Now, Sean, you know, here on Status Go, we love to leave our listeners with a strong call to action. Uh, my call to action for our listeners is to buy this book, uh, If Gold is Our Destiny, because it, it is a tremendous book. Uh, but Sean, what are one or two things uh, that our listeners should do today, kind of those lessons from this story, what should they do today because they listen to our conversation? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a true believer in this idea of the shared significant life experience, and I don't expect you to go sign your, your team up for Outward Bound. <laughs> That's probably not going to happen. Uh, and it's even a little harder these days to gather on a Friday at happy hour or some of these mm-hmm. other things that mm-hmm. people like to do. Uh, so I would just encourage you as a leader to find a way to continue to forge those bonds and those relationships. And it could be uh, inviting people to share a little bit about stories from their past where they've overcome uh, challenges, inviting people to share experiences where they've been on high performing teams before and what were those elements and talk about that as a team, talk about how you want to, uh, work together as a team and um, understand one another in a deeper way. Uh, I like to ask people on my team on a Monday morning, how was your weekend? What happened? You know, be curious. Don't yeah. just, you know, it, I know we're all busy, and but, you know, take an interest in, in the, in what's going on in people's lives and understand what's happening so that you can um, relate to people on a, on a deeper level. So you can have those, kinds of, you know, ties and relationships are going to help you as a team. Uh, so that would be one, one big one is to really spend some time on how you work together as a team. And that really starts with um, developing the relationships and the trust. I, I love that, Sean, because it, it foundationally within a team, trust is so, so important. Now, before I let you go, when does the book come out and where can people get it? 
So the book comes out July 13th and it's available at almost any online retailer, you know, so if you go to Amazon uh, and or Barnes and Noble or any of the major sites to buy books online, bookstore.org, uh, it, it will be there. And uh, you, or you can just search for If Gold is Our Destiny, it's by Sean Murray. And uh, Karch Karai wrote the foreword. Uh, and so he provides his insight into this team, which I think is another little little gem that you you yeah. sort of get as a bonus if you, if you buy the book. Excellent, excellent. Well, we will be sure and include links in the show notes, Sean, for the the book. And again, to our listeners, I encourage you to pick up a copy of "If Gold Is Our Destiny." You will learn some leadership skills again, whether you're brand new in a leadership role, or you've been doing it for decades, uh, there are uh, a bunch of lessons in this book that you can that you can apply immediately. Sean, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, as always, it's great to chat with you, man. Thanks, Jeff. This has been a really fun conversation. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, be sure to visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Sean Murray. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.